Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but the dominoes have indeed started to fall. And as the summer turns to autumn, I'm kind of worried about how many more are going to tumble. I am referring, of course, to the postponement once again of the Ironman World Championships in Hawaii, originally scheduled for October of 2020, rescheduled for February of this year, and then rescheduled again for this coming October. And soon after we heard about that postponement, we also heard about the cancellation of the 2021 Ironman Canada, which itself had been postponed from 2020 to 2021 and then put off by six weeks, only to now be cancelled. As the Delta variant has ripped through a largely unvaccinated population in Hawaii, hospitals there have rapidly filled, and the ICU in Kona was down to its very last bed before the local government decided, well, maybe inviting a large crowd for a triathlon wasn't really the best idea. Now, putting aside the morbidity and mortality associated with the pandemic, which, truth be told, really is the main story, I'm going to focus on the triathlon-related parts, since, let's face it, this is a triathlon podcast. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to the health issues, but for now, let's just talk about how this has impacted athletes, triathletes specifically. First and foremost, there are the thousands who had been training for this race, and that includes many who had deferred from 2020 and all those who qualified at races once racing eventually resumed, and that includes right up to the 75 slots that were granted at last week's Ironman Copenhagen. All of those athletes are now looking at a race in February, if, and that's a pretty big if, things calm down by then and the race can actually go ahead and, be, and take place as planned at that time. For those who had slots for the 2020 race, they already had the opportunity to defer as late as next year, and Ironman announced with this postponement of the October 2021 race that, similarly, athletes could again defer to next year, 2022, or even as far down the road as 2023 or 2024. Now, as you can imagine, this has had a significant cascading effect, where slots for 2022 and beyond are now claimed before any of the races that usually would be considered qualifying events for that year have taken place or have even started opening up for registration. Consequently, the number of slots on offer for 2022 qualifying Ironmans have been significantly cut. Looking at the Ironman website, in the past, races would have a minimum of 40 slots to Kona. National championships would get 75, and in some cases, even as many as 100. Now, 2021 was an extreme year. With so many races cancelled, slots would have to then cascade into whatever races remained, leading to somewhat farcical allocations that we saw in Kirtland and Tulsa, where qualifiers got slots with times that would obviously never even be considered to make it into a world championship. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I don't begrudge anyone who got a slot in this way. I understand the predicament that Ironman faced and the constraints that the pandemic has placed on everyone and everything. So anybody who was lucky enough to get a once-in-a-lifetime slot that way deserves congratulations. You earned that slot and you benefited from these strange times. So why shouldn't you take advantage of it? But the knock-on effect of all of this is that for participants in races that are taking place now and throughout 2022 is that Kona slots are going to be pretty much impossible to come by since they are going to be rarer than hen's teeth. For just about all of the races qualifying for Kona in 2022, there are going to be exactly 
26 slots on offer per race. That is one slot per age group if you're keeping track. Now, a few select races will have more, such as Ironman Utah with all of 50. But this essentially means that in 2022, unless you win your age group outright, you're not going to Kona. Now, I know this impacts an extremely small segment of the Ironman racing community and probably only a very tiny proportion of the people listening. But for those few, this is kind of a big deal. At a given race in any men's age group, there are 5 to 10 individuals fast enough to compete for the top 5, and though there is almost always one person who will clearly win, that second position, usually with a Kona slot, is very much up for grabs. Now that's not going to be the case anymore. For those 10 fast guys, that Kona slot is a big motivator for racing, and when it's now gone, I think it's a legitimate question to ask if they're still going to race. Now I'm one of those 10, and I have to tell you that I gotta think long and hard if I'm gonna put in the time, the effort, and ask my family to sacrifice if I know going in that a slot is really gonna be out of the question. I'm not gonna win my age group, but that second slot was always a possibility. Now, I know some women will say, and they have reached out to me on social media, that this is just the way it always is on the women's side, and there is some merit to that. But in fairness, the start lists of Ironman remain pretty consistently a third women and two-thirds men, and slots are already skewed in favor of the women when every age group gets one slot. So this change of 40 down to 26 is essentially reducing only men's slots and leaving the distribution now at half the slots going to the proportion of the field that is only one-third of participants. I guarantee you, if all the slots being reduced were coming off the women's side, I would be just as disappointed and, honestly, probably even more angry. I'm not particularly angry about this. And I think that's a point to reinforce here. I'm not angry. I'm not complaining about all of it. I understand what's going on. I'm really just disappointed, as it's a change that impacts my decision on whether or not to do an Ironman. And again, I recognize this is an issue for a very small number of people. Now, I'm not really blaming Iron Man here. I understand what's going on, and like those who benefited from the bounty of slots earlier this year, it's just my bad luck to be faced with the flip side of that. It just goes to show that if we can't get out of this mess, these kinds of weird, unanticipated things are going to continue to show up in our lives and remind us how far we are from getting back to normal. All of which is to say, and here's where I get back to the health issue, is please, pretty please, with a cherry on top. If you haven't already done so, get yourself vaccinated. That really is the only way out of this and the only way back to a normal life. And let's face it, the reason that Kona has been cancelled is because of the large population of unvaccinated people clogging up the hospitals there. Now, do you have questions or concerns about the vaccine? Are you still hesitant about getting it even now that it's got FDA approval? Well, email me. I promise I will be open to any question and provide the best available evidence to help reassure anyone that the vaccines are safe, effective, and very much the thing to do to help not only you, but everyone around you get back to a normal world sooner rather than later. And that includes getting back to normal races in Kona. On the show today, I continue my series on alternative therapies for injury management. In the past two episodes, I've discussed steroids and platelet-rich plasma injections. Well, today, I look at a non-invasive treatment, and that is low-level laser therapy, or LLLT. 
This is different than the red light treatments that I discussed in the past. So what does the medical literature have to say about lasers and how they stack up to the claims being made by the clinics who offer this treatment? And that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm going to bring you an interview that I recorded some time ago with professional long course triathlete Steve McKenna. We originally recorded our interview shortly after he won the 70.3 race in Geelong back in the spring, but for various reasons, I just haven't been able to share it with you until now. Steve is a lot of fun to talk to, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy our conversation, and that's going to be coming up in a short bit. But before all of that, I want to take a moment to remind you all of an upcoming event for all of my Patreon supporters. Next Monday, August the 30th at 8pm Mountain Time, I'm going to be giving a live, interactive talk on the science of tapering. It's going to be a great opportunity to hear me dig into the science behind some of the things that I covered on a recent episode on tapering, and to interact with other listeners, and of course with me. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to this talk, as well as to the other bonus segments that have already been added on that site, including my interviews with Dan Emfield, Dave Scott, Simon Marshall, Leslie Patterson, among others. And you can find information on how to subscribe and access all the great bonus content at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. And thank you so much in advance for considering. As a physician with a background in the traditional sciences, I've always been a bit of a stickler for the basics when it comes to buying into novel therapies for really any kind of ailment. And by that I mean there should be some sound scientific principles that back up a treatment before it's adopted as something that people will use when they have any specific problem. Now when I talk about principles, what I'm referring to are the basic tenets of scientific research. That is that there's a biological rationale for how a treatment works, there's a measurable dose response to the treatment demonstrating that up to a point, more works better than less, and the best possible research Randomized controlled trials demonstrate that the treatment is better than whatever the current standard of care happens to be, or alternatively, that this particular treatment being investigated is no different than the current standard, but offers less adverse side effects. Now, in my investigations of alternative therapies for common, often chronic injuries, we've seen how both steroids and platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, had plausible biological explanations for their being able to treat the conditions that they were proposed to treat. Similarly, in lab animal studies, there was some beneficial dose-response curve, at least for steroids, maybe not as much for PRP. But where both treatments kind of fell down was in that final and, let's face it, the most difficult hurdle to clear. That is both because the studies, the randomized control trials, are really difficult to do well, and also because the studies that were done in both of those treatment modalities, well, they failed to really prove to be beneficial, except in very specific instances, and even then, the results were really only modestly beneficial. Well, Every once in a while, I learn about something that turns this whole notion on its head. For example, a plant extract or something like that is going to be found that miraculously stops a certain kind of cancer in its tracks. And scientists will have no idea how or why it works, but the results of the studies are unquestionable. It just plain works. And in these cases, 
I'm kind of okay without knowing how something works, so long as the other two criteria, the fact that there's a dose-response curve suggesting that, indeed, this thing is the thing that's responsible for making patients better, and the randomized control trial demonstrate that it's beneficial. As long as those two criteria are met, I don't necessarily need to understand how it's doing what it does. Well, on today's medical segment, we have a situation a little bit akin to this sort of hypothetical situation of the plant extract in cancer, and that is with low-level laser therapy. Now, as lasers have become significantly less expensive and more portable, they've entered into the commercial retail space in a really big way. I'm sure you're all familiar with laser hair and tattoo removal and how those are really big business. And so it really isn't all that surprising that the entrance of laser treatment into healthcare, while more recent, isn't really all that unexpected. Now, low-level laser therapy, or LLLT, is also known as photobiomodulation, and it came into being in its modern form pretty soon after the invention of the ruby laser back in 1960, as well as the helium neon laser in 1961. In 1967, a scientist by the name of Andre Mester, who was working in Budapest, Hungary, noticed that by applying laser light to the backs of shaven mice, he could induce the shaved hair to grow back more quickly than in unshaved mice. And don't ask me what prompted him to even try this, because I have no idea. At any rate, low-level laser therapy is sometimes referred to as cold laser and shouldn't be confused with red light therapy, which is something different and something I discussed back in episode 32, which I'd invite you to go back and listen to if you're interested. Mester also noted that this treatment could promote wound healing in lab animals, and he soon went on to try it with human patients who had chronic, non-healing skin ulcers. Well, low-level laser therapy has now developed into a therapeutic procedure that tends to be used in one of three ways. To reduce inflammation, edema, excuse me, to reduce inflammation, edema, and chronic joint disorders, that's number one. To promote the healing of wounds, deeper tissues, and nerves, that's number two. And then finally, to treat neurologic disorders and pain. The thing is, after all the subsequent decades since this was first introduced back in the late 60s, we really don't know anything about how this treatment actually works to produce any results. There is no plausible biological action that has ever been proposed to explain how it might work, and basic research to date has failed to shed any light, and that pun is very much intended, on the cellular or biochemical processes underpinning any of the observed effects of using laser therapy in this way. But still, As I mentioned before, just because we don't understand how something works doesn't mean we can't accept it as a potentially useful treatment if, and that's a really big if, there is good evidence to show that it works and that it is better than the current treatments in use. So let's take a look at what low-level laser therapy has been evaluated for and see if indeed there really is any evidence that suggests or supports its uh, use for some different medical indications. Now, one of the first ailments that I came across where low-level laser therapy had been advocated for was the treatment of muscle injury, like hamstring strains or tears, so clearly very relevant to us as triathletes. Now, previous lab studies had shown that in mice, laser therapy was beneficial at speeding healing and allowing mice to return to triathlon earlier than without. Okay, I kid. But in reality, laser therapy had proven beneficial in speeding healing in animal models. What does the research show in humans, though? Well, in 22 male athletes with varying severity of injury, 
physiotherapy with laser therapy was compared to physiotherapy alone. And it turned out that in this study, the laser therapy conferred no benefit whatsoever to any of the measured outcomes, including return to sport or muscle strength. And the researchers considered various reasons for why mice might happen to benefit in the lab, but humans don't in real life. And they postulated that the injury in humans is simply too deep within the muscle for the laser to actually penetrate and confer any benefits. Well, whatever the real reason, it's clear from the one study that's been done on this that laser therapy does not seem to benefit these types of injuries whatsoever. Now, a second type of acute injury that laser therapy has been evaluated for is ankle sprain. So now we're not talking about muscles, but we're talking about ligaments. And in a pretty well-designed randomized control trial, 217 patients who had ankle sprains were treated with standard therapy or with standard therapy and low or high-dose laser therapy. And in this study, the authors again found no difference at all from adding laser therapy to treatment and concluded that, as far as ankle sprains go, laser therapy really has no role in managing this problem. Now, all the other studies that we could find on laser therapy were not on acute injuries, but rather on chronic processes. So let's look at what the evidence showed there. I've talked about osteoarthritis on both of the previous episodes, indicating how big of a problem this is in Western society. And in both cases of the novel treatment, steroids and PRP showed either no evidence that they worked or, in the case of PRP, maybe some suggestion that it might be beneficial. Although, what degree of uh, benefit it gave and for how long it actually lasted remains unclear. With respect to laser therapy... A comprehensive review of 22 trials either in co- of, of laser therapy, either in combination with standard treatments or on its own, seemed to show some benefit with respect to decreasing pain associated with osteoarthritis of the knee specifically. And there was also a statistically significant improvement in disability associated with laser therapy, but the clinical degree of improvement was not able to be quantified based on the data that was extracted from those 22 studies. Now, there was a lot of inconsistency in the results, and this was mostly attributable to the fact that the protocols varied widely from one study to another, and no true dose response could really be seen across studies. Still, the authors concluded that laser therapy does show some promise for this indication, and that further, better designed trials might provide a better answer as to the role of low-level laser therapy for osteoarthritis of the knee specifically. So for right now, I guess the jury's kind of out. Another chronic injury that was evaluated was shoulder tendinopathy, and that's something that I've discussed as a significant source of pain and disability, particularly for older swimmers. In a review of 17 different studies of laser therapy either on its own or as an adjunct to standard rehab exercises to treat shoulder injuries of this type, the authors determined that laser therapy did seem to be associated with a statistically significant, though not clinically significant, reduction in self-reported pain scores. And a reminder, just because a result is statistically significant, that suggests that the result was truly there. But if it's not clinically significant, then even though the result was truly there, it didn't matter to the patients. Furthermore, this statistically significant result didn't really translate to any functional improvements in shoulder mobility. And the authors were themselves kind of sanguine about these findings, wondering whether outcome measures of pain reduction are clinically valid if pain relief isn't actually accompanied by improvements in measures of disability. And I would tend to echo this as a very real concern. So for shoulder tendinopathy, it would appear laser therapy not really helpful. Finally, 
There was one chronic injury where the evidence does seem to suggest some benefit for laser therapy, and that is with chronic tendinopathy of the Achilles. In a study of 52 athletes who were randomized to either typical stretching and physiotherapy alone or with laser therapy, those who received laser therapy had improvements in pain at all of the time points that were evaluated, and by four weeks had functional improvement that was seen in the control group only at 12 weeks. Now that's a pretty substantial difference, and suggests that laser therapy could be quite beneficial in treating this often very frustrating chronic injury. And I should note, this is chronic Achilles tendinopathy that we're talking about, not acute Achilles tendinitis, which, as I've mentioned before, are very different things. Laser therapy has not been evaluated for managing the acute injury, but may be helpful for managing the chronic tendinopathy that often results based on what we've seen in this particular study. Now, a larger study, or maybe at least a duplication of this one small trial, would go a long way towards convincing me that this is indeed a real effect. But for now, since this is all we have, I would say that for this indication, chronic tendinopathy of the Achilles, laser therapy might be worth considering. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, similar to how I did when I first heard of low-level laser therapy in the first place, how much does this cost? And what are clinics that offer this saying that it's good for? Well, I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that the cost question is a little bit hard to nail down precisely, which to me is always a red flag. And the marketing of this doesn't tend to be in line with the research that I've already covered to this point. In my brief survey of a handful of clinics advertising laser treatments for injuries, I came across all manner of claims, including that laser therapy could treat back pain, disc herniations, neck pain, pain from shingles and herpes sores, frozen shoulder, plantar fasciitis, acute tendinitis, shoulder impingement, among many, many others. Now, I didn't delve into the neuropathic pain literature for low-level laser therapy, but I'd be pretty amazed if it suggested the kinds of results that these clinics are promising for all of these indications, given what we've seen with the musculoskeletal injury literature not showing really anything that dramatic. It's possible, of course, it just seems somewhat unlikely. Now, as to the cost, none of the clinics are particularly forthcoming in revealing pricing, but I did find one site that suggested that laser treatments have a range of cost from $50 to $150 per session, with a note that most people require around 10 sessions. So that means you're looking at a cost of anywhere from $500 to $1,500 for what really amounts to pretty questionable benefits, unless that is you have a chronic Achilles tendinopathy, in which case there is a suggestion potentially of some benefit. So where does that leave us? Well, similarly to what we found with PRP, there's no reports of harm associated with low-level laser therapy. So at this point, the question then becomes one of cost-benefit. In the absence of side effects, this is always the calculation that needs to be made. And unfortunately, as so often is the case for people who have chronic injuries and who really become desperate for some kind of relief... Making that calculation is not as obvious or rational as it should be, especially when emotion gets wrapped up in the math. At the end of the day, low-level laser therapy is not going to cause any harm, but it's also unlikely to really provide any substantial relief. Now, if you're suffering from chronic Achilles tendinopathy, you could certainly consider this therapy, but with the understanding that it's not going to be cheap, and in the end, may only be a little bit helpful, if at all.
Well, what about you? Do you have any experience with this treatment of low-level laser therapy? Do you have a comment on anything you heard in this segment or a question for me to consider on a future segment? Well, I hope you'll send me your information, your question, or any comments you might have to TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. My guest today is professional triathlete Steve McKenna. I think it's fair to say that Steve didn't take the typical route to the professional ranks of our sport. In 2015, Steve broke his leg and ankle during a game of Aussie Rules football. And if you're not familiar with that sport, we'll discuss. After 15 weeks on crutches, he began the rehab of his leg, which involved stationary cycling and swimming. And it was during this time that he'd rediscovered his love for endurance and came to realize that what he really wanted to pursue in life was to compete at an elite level again. His first triathlon was in 2015, but within a short period of 12 months, he gained a professional license in long course triathlon. In his first three years in the sport, he was awarded the South Australian Triathlete of the Year and has finished in the top 10 in every professional race that he's competed in. While his plan was to continue to improve in long course, he did take a brief detour to the world of the ITU circuit, where he also found some success, but the experience solidified his desire to compete long course. 2019 was really his breakthrough year. Just four years after learning how to bicycle and swim, he ended up second overall in the Challenge Family World Series. Then this year, Steve has had wins already at Ironman 70.3 Geelong and the Hell of the West Long Course Triathlon, among several others. But today, he slowed down just briefly enough to join me on the TriDoc podcast. And Steve, I can't thank you enough. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You make it sound a lot better than then I um, feel like it is. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Your Palmaris are really uh, pretty impressive. So, so tell me, uh, I, I am familiar with Aussie rules football, but I'm sure many of my listeners are not. So growing up and up, growing up in Australia, I know that uh, there's, you know, I mean, the main sports that people watch there are rugby, cricket. There's a certain amount of people that will still watch football, but I know it's not nearly <laughs> as big of a deal. And then of course, if you live in certain areas, specifically in Victoria, Aussie rules is really the big deal. So just if you could give, I I know it's impossible to describe quickly, but (laughs) what's Aussie rules? Yeah, it's an oval-shaped ball like rugby, um, also like American football, but we kick it um, and you can't throw it. You have to like punch it with your hand essentially. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, it is a really cool sport. It's, um, it's as high tech and well filmed and well watched and the guys are famous locally here. You know, they're not famous anywhere but Australia, but they are making great money. <laughs> and, um, a good friend of mine's just signed like another three-year contract with Port Adelaide. Adelaide is where I live. Um, and that's a million-dollar contract, so it's nothing like the U.S. sports. Um, it's Australia. Where, <laughs> but, you know, for us, it's big. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And 
I mean, I, I watched it in Canada. I got quite a bit of play on uh, the Sports Network, which was our version of ESPN. And uh, I mean, the thing that everybody who watches Aussie Rules for the first time that everybody knows is the umpire, the guy with the little white hat who comes and does the pointing. Um, but it is, it's a very exciting game. It's its sort of a, I always thought of it as sort of a combination of rugby and maybe several other sports sort of thrown together. There's a certain amount, it's a very exciting game to watch for sure. Yeah. The rules are not totally intuitive but um yeah so you grew up playing that yeah i went to a footy school so my high school recruits um in south australia and victoria they're the big sports um cricket and football um aussie rules football so yeah we recruit the most afl players i guess who you know become professional so uh it was just you can't not do it at my school and frowned upon if you ever stopped playing as well. So yeah. <laughs> I had to break my leg really badly to have a good enough excuse to quit. <laughs> so, so give us some insight. You're doing your rehab during 2015 and I guess you must be on some kind of spin cycle, uh, just kind of like strengthening your leg and getting some mobility back. And I guess at that point they threw you into the pool. Had you been a swimmer before? Uh, well, I threw myself into the pool cause the physio just said, you can't kick because you've done your syndesmosis ligament as well. Um, so, so, I had the, for, so for the listeners, the syndesmosis ligament is the ligament that attaches the fibula and the tibia together. It keeps your keeps your lower leg basically stable. Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> yeah, so there was two pins. Um, so it was two surgeries, of course. They had to take those pins out that were holding the bones together. And um, So, yeah, swimming with my um, feet tied together, which I did this morning because I've got a broken toe. So I'm back doing that again now, <laughs> but um, the times are a lot different to the back then. <laughs> well, this is what I want to get at. You see, I, I want to see, you know, now I, we've been chatting a little bit before we started recording and I can attest that you're a very affable gentleman. You know, people, people, if they get to know you are going to really like you, but age groupers are going to hate you. If you tell me what I think you're going to tell me, which is that you did not swim growing up. Yeah, I, I did the state swim, you know, where you go learn how to swim and you move up from they call it starfish and dolphin and everything. So I did it until I was 12. Um, I learned the stroke, but I never swam after that until 23. And then, and then at 23, you just start swimming half Ironmans and banging out 18 minute swims. I, but you know, I did my first triathlon and I was like, this is going to be my job. Um, so I threw everything at it. I was watching YouTube videos. Steve, Steve, I've, if I decided it's going to be my job, I'm not going to swim like you. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. clearly, yeah. clearly you, 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 you know, you're, you're blowing my whole theory of adult learning swimming, which is if you don't start young, you can't do it. You've just blown that away. And I, I'm, I'm yeah. a little bit upset and I'm sure some listeners will be as well. <laughs> well, good on you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's luck though. Your body is made for it sometimes. And I've got you know the joints will move in a certain way and um yeah i think some people genetically are made to swim so apparently probably... yeah lucky you um and then the biking i mean the biking obviously everybody can you know you can train yourself to be a cyclist how did you sort out that wow i can actually do this uh well i was going to become a cyclist and that's um i moved to triathlon because the the Institute of Sport in South Australia, they had me out training with them after I, the first ride I ever went on, I had, you know, footy socks, sneakers, uh, creaking bike, didn't know how to change the gears um, on the on dad's bike. And I went up the local climb, which is pretty popular here with the, the Tour Down Under goes up at it a lot as well. It's called Norton Summit. Um, and I just chased this guy up the hill when he was wearing red and white. And that was 
SASI, South Australian Institute of Sport. I had no idea though, so I just chased him up the hill because it was my. I was just desperate to get fit. He goes, you can ride a bike and you can um, tie your feet together and swim. So I took the moon boot off every now and then um, and went up riding. He said to do it on a stationary trainer, but I was like, well, I'm not going to fall off. I'm going on the road. <laughs> so I went up the hill for the first time and this guy, you know, I chased him up and I'm panting. I'm like, I haven't done anything for weeks. I so badly want to, you know, rip a hole in my lungs. And um this guy gets to the top and he goes, Oh, what's your PB? I said, It's my first time. And <laughs> so it's goes, my PB. <laughs> yeah. so he goes, Oh, your first time on the hill. I said, Oh, it's my first time riding on the roads ever. Um, and he just was gobsmacked. So he goes, You've done 16 minutes. I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, it's not that impressive to me now, but for your first ride, I guess it is. Um, uh, and then, yeah, he just, you know, contacted coaches and got me out there. But you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So after a month training with the Institute of Sport guys, these are all Olympians and whatnot, um, and I'm there like rocking up in footy shorts and they're all like talking amongst themselves like, what is this guy doing? So I'm wearing these short shorts that are made for Aussie Rules football. I'm wearing football socks, um, you know, these big baggy socks. Um, I'm asking people how to change gears on the first ride with them. Um, and, yeah, I just came off a few times and I was like, oh, I don't know if this is for me because, um, you know, they threw me right in the deep end, go out and train with the guys from the track and go out and train with, the, you know, some guys who are pro cyclists on the tour. Um, and, yeah, it was just – it was just – I was out of my depth. And then um, when the guys – it's confirmed it for me when he said you can't – you got to stop the running because all of a sudden I could run. The, the doctor had said, no, and the physio, you can run now if you want. So I started running three times a week, which I love. It's always, I was a runner as a junior um, for the state teams and all that. So, yeah, when he said you got to you got to cut that out, it'll ruin your bike legs. That was me done. <laughs> so, all right, there's my excuse to stop falling off this bike. Um, and triathlon, you ride in a straight line, so I'm a lot safer. <laughs> well, how did you how did you even find out about triathlon? Uh, I always knew about it. Just thought it was stupid because. I was <laughs> But it was stupid until it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, we were, you know, uh, when I was a junior runner at, at national level, I, I was I was like, I'm busy ads. Like, I've got all the other sports. I've got running. I don't know how they've got time for swim, bike, and run because I'm I'm running all the time. Um, but then you know, I got older and I'm not at school anymore and finishing a uni degree and um, and I'm like, well, all I want to do is train all day, so it's not stupid, <laughs> like. I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm addicted now. And I was when I first started. <laughs> yeah. You talk about genetics. I mean, clearly there's something there. I mean, you know, a lot of people rehab from an injury and decide, you know, I really like to be a lead at, uh, at this sport and I'm going to dedicate myself to it. But I mean, you know, one out of a thousand are successful. <laughs> you, you made this decision and then you get on a bike. That's like some crusty old bike. And like, you can keep up with some elite cyclists going up a hill there. There's something to the genetics component here. So, uh, yeah, no, no question. You, you were primed to succeed at whatever sport you chose. And thankfully for us, it was triathlon because it's, uh, it's quite amazing. The results that you've put up in just a few short years. Uh, what, what are your goals? I mean, are, I, most of your races seem to be halves. Are you looking at making the jump to the full distance? Yeah, I did one full. It was it went really well. Um, but yeah, like life falls apart around you when you're preparing for a full Ironman, as, as you know. Um, 
So it's, it's tough to bring yourself to do another one. And I was just preparing for one, but Ironman Australia got postponed. Um, so, yeah, the focus would be to do one a year just because, you know, the PTO now puts a lot of weight on these full Ironmans apparently. Um, and then I did I, – the only reason I did one in 2019 is because I was chasing that Challenge Family Series. And you need to do a full if you're going to um, – you have to do it as part of the criteria of the series. You got to do at least one. I think that was the case. So that's the only reason I did it. Um, but it went really well. I was really well prepared. Felt ready. Eight eight seventeen with, I think the the elevation on that course was seventeen hundred over the hundred eighty k. So and then it was pretty hot in the run. But if I'm honest, it wasn't hot for China. Um, so I, I did a two fifty three. I think um, it was like. 3.45 average pace for 30K and then full leg and body cramps. I couldn't even grab a water without my hand clenching the fist. So mm-hmm. I was just basically run walking for a while. Um, and, yeah, even my toes were, like, curling up. And, and I was like, this is so easy. And then I got to 30K and I was like, ah, I get it. I yeah. Get it. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. I was like, I don't understand what everyone complains about. And then all of a sudden. <laughs> then you get it, like, right? Yeah. <laughs> like so many others like so many others so uh do you you know you say one a year but i I assume if you qualified for kona you would make it two in a year yeah yeah so that i was was thinking that early this year like oh you know i'm probably suited to it. i love the training um but then i ran a 110 at um geelong and reedy just has it in my head now and also i agree he he had this idea now that you need to focus on 70.3 if you you know, it felt pretty good and you did a 110 you think there's more in you. Um, and, you know, we've only just started the surface. We could probably just become 70.3 specialists for, you know, at least two to three to five years and then spend some time in the Ironman because I could use this speed because, you know, um, 320, was it 320 pace nearly for a 110 run? And it feels it feels pretty easy coming from the ITU sort of speed and um and just having a running background as well so i really want to chase this 70.3 stuff for a while now um but yeah it's you know with with covid it's tough they just can't be choosers so i'll do an ironman if i have to when i spoke to tim you know he made some of those comments about how uh especially for him, he's a little bit older than you. I mean, 70.3 is a distance that's a lot easier to train for as a professional. It's a lot easier to race more frequently. And I mean, when you're racing for your salary, uh, more races is more salary. And and 70.3 has a lot of um, allure for those reasons. And he made a very compelling argument for why he has, you know, focused on that distance. And I certainly, you know, you're young, I mean, 23, I mean, a lot of the Ironman successful athletes really only start seeing success in their late twenties, early thirties. And I think that's because they get that base, you know, that base of consistency of going fast at the 70.3 distance for several years. And then make, and then, like you said, take that speed, take that training base and move up to the Ironman distance. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a very, uh, you know, wise approach and uh, you're being coached by one of the best. So I don't, uh, I don't doubt you'll have success. Well, I'm 29 now for the record. I was, I was late 23 when I started when I first took up triathlon. So I, I had like four years just drinking beers and playing Aussie rules football. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I looked 
I, I, my body feels a lot younger in terms of a triathlete's um, lifespan. So, so I don't doubt that I'll go to 40 anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I look yeah. at Jan. Jan's 40 and, and looking like he's 30. I mean, 40 is a new 30. I, hey, I'm 50. 50 is a new 40. So <laughs> you got uh, you got yeah, a long no. way to go. <laughs> I, think I would not get that. <laughs> See? Not, yeah, there we go. You, the viewer, the listeners can't see, so feel free to just keep saying that, and it's all good. <laughs> um, well, this is going to be your first time, I gather, uh, having an opportunity to participate in the World Championships, uh, the seventy or the, the Ironman World Championships, the seventy point three distance this year at St. George. But it's also the first time uh, you're welcoming a, a baby to the world. Uh, that's gonna, coming around this July. Congratulations. Um, what uh, what kind of goes into the calculus of whether or not you'll attend uh, St. George later this year? Well, it, would, it wouldn't be a question if I wasn't in Australia. We have this two-week quarantine when you get home. So it's, it'll sacrifice the rest of my season as well. Um, and with this injury, we've only got one race left until August and September. Or probably if you're in Australia, it's September is the first race after Cairns, which is soon. But um, so there's a big break. And if I'm to go over there and just sit in a hotel room for two weeks straight after the race, I'm missing a newborn child for three weeks. Um, only the top 10 gets paid at Ironman World Champs. So there's so much to consider. It's an attitude. It's hilly. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I am newer than the other guys to this bike riding thing. So if they're, I'm going to look up the course. If it's too technical for me, um on the downhills it's going to be a complete waste of time me going there but um so yeah there's so much to consider it's very confusing but i so badly want to start going to world champs so i'm going to try and make it work because um most of the advice from reedy is you need to go to the world champs do it badly you need to go to the world champs again do it okay you need to go again do pretty well you need to go again and win it so the only way i'm going to um you know do what I want to do in this sport, which is become a world champ or at least close to, and at least be competitive to do that. Um, is yeah, I got to keep going. So I want to make a start, um, but it's it's a really tough year to make a start. Um, yeah, with, yeah, it's yeah. a tough year for everyone, but especially you know, given your situation of the baby, and then of course the the mandatory quarantines. Uh, that that's mm -hmm. a lot to consider. I, I will tell you if. If the world championship course is the same as the 70.3 course, and I don't know that it will be, but if it is, uh, there's really one long downhill and it's not technical at all. It's actually wide open and very easy. It's fast. Um, but the, the climbs are nothing to, you know, no, certainly I, I don't find them terribly challenging. I know as a professional, you'll find them really not challenging. Um, it's a, it's a very beautiful course and it's a, it's, it's, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a challenging course cause it is, but as 70.3 courses go, it's got a fair amount of elevation. It's challenging, but given that the bike is the strength for me, uh, I, I, love this course um and i'm sure you know as a professional you wouldn't find it overly difficult um but i don't know if the world championship course is going to change from what is the 70.3 course so to be okay. continued yeah I'm here. Um, yep. so it's the city if, if we um get vaccines over here <laughs> yeah yeah i hope so i hope that works out um <laughs> 
Now, I want to talk about something that happened recently to you, uh, a little bit of misfortune. You won uh, Geelong, uh, the 70.3 for Americans. uh, You might read that as G-Long or Um, (laughs) G-Long. And that's just because it's spelled uh, in a way that uh, you might not think it's Geelong. Um, But then two weeks later, you placed third at Challenge Shepparton and had uh, somewhat of a... um, I don't know, uh, an eventful race. Tell us what happened at Shepparton. Yeah, I had a, had a great swim and then we're getting out running towards transition number one and there's just two little steps that I just didn't see. Um, so we turned we turned right um, and I didn't realise we were going up two steps. I'm just too focused on getting in there first and getting out. Um, I think I'm a transition number one specialist. So, <laughs> so that's my thing. I'm going to get out and hopefully um, out of sight, out of mind. But it's never the case. Everyone's pretty strong. So it's always worth it just trying. So anyway, I just smashed my toe on one of the steps um, and I just thought it was really badly stubbed. So um, it was pretty painful at the time and I yelled, um, I reckon, uh, the F word. And then... um, (laughs) Did you go down? Like, did you trip and fall? Or was it... Did you recover and just... You stumbled down? Yeah, it was like a... Almost face planted, but like saved it. Um, But then I was looking down at the toe because I'm like, that hurt. Um, And I ran into the barrier where we were meant to turn left into transition. So I was just a mess. And then um, anyway, um, it's a stub toe, so let's move on. And I just rode the bike. 90k it was a bit uncomfortable but not painful just yet because it was pretty cold and then on the run getting the shoes on was harder than i expected and it was a little bit pain painful and then still a bit numb and then halfway through the run it was went from uncomfortable to pretty painful but it's still just a tub a stub toe in my head so um you know just hurry up and um there's there's a lot more pain in my quads anyway so (laughs) um and then i crossed the line and it was um it was just out to the side. Um, so the assumption was that it's broken or dislocated. Um, and I think the the Nike carbon-plated shoes um, are to thank as well. Um, cycling shoes are, of course, stiff, but so are these shoes. So if I was in another pair of shoes or if it was slightly hotter, I don't think I would have finished the race because I would have checked out this toe sooner. But um, it wasn't sore enough to to stop at any point. It was, it was sore, but... It just, I think if you knew it was broken and dislocated and out to the side, then you would stop um, and it would hurt, hurt more in your head. But there's something in your head. I think pain can be in your head sometimes as well. Oh, so. absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing how much, you know, when you're in the heat of the race, the heat of the battle, if you will, I mean, you're just like going on and, and you're just not paying attention and, and you can push things aside. Right. And yeah. And then all of a sudden when you stop and you're like, wow, that really hurts. <laughs> and then you look yeah, at it yeah. and you're like, oh my God, that <laughs> really hurts. <laughs> yeah. When you look at it, it hurts more. But, yeah. but yeah. I think like even blisters, you, you see someone running so naturally and then they, they stop, they take the shoes off. All of a sudden they're limping. They're like well, you were just running so, so, so normal just then. Um, I think I feel like once you've stopped and you've calmed down a bit, everything starts to hurt a lot more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so x-rays have confirmed that not only is it broken, but you, you need to have surgery, which is unusual for a great toe. The great toe is often subject to surgery to be repaired, but it's, it's pretty unusual for the other toes to need surgery. You must've really done a number. So uh, you're undergoing surgery and how long will you be out for? 
Uh, it's not going to be that long. It's just that there'll be a pin in it for for like a few weeks. Um, and then they've got to take that out and then I'm good to go. But, you know, he was saying you can't do too much during this. Um, but I've got my plans. I'm, you know, as long as I'm careful with this pin, um, I don't think it's going to get infected from me riding a stationary trainer with, um, Basically, I'm going to cut my cycling shoe to bits and pieces and, and slide my shoe in carefully. Uh, sorry, yeah. slide my foot in, sorry. So I won't actually, it won't, you know, I need a break anyway, desperately. So it's, I'm seeing it as a very good thing. Um, the only thing, the only way to get me to rest is a forced rest. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've had a conversation not too long ago with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Leslie Patterson and Simon Marshall. Uh, Leslie is an Irish uh, triathlete who's a world champion in the Xterra. Simon, her husband, is a, a, a PhD psychologist. And together they wrote a book called Brave Athlete. And uh, they dedicate a, a large chunk of the book on how athletes, specifically triathletes, do a terrible job of dealing with injury. And you're the antithesis of their terrible dealing with injury. I mean, you're taking it exactly the way they would have you take it, which is, you know, just see the upside of it, take it as a forced rest, you know, look for ways that you can, uh, you know, continue to train as best you can and look for ways that you can modify your, you know, your weaknesses, you know, find the weaknesses that you've had during the season, see if there's a way that you can work on them while you're, you know, forced rest and, and see this as a way to come back even stronger. So, so good for you. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's so difficult, especially for professionals when it's like your income, is dependent on your training for you to, to just be so casual about, well, it's forced rest. I'm just going to deal with it. I think that uh, we age groupers could take a lot from that attitude. So uh, good on yeah. you. I'm really glad to hear you taking it uh, in that way. I, I want to finish with uh, one last question. And that is, you know, when you show up at a race, you know, as age groupers, many of us, when we go to a race, uh, you know, we have the bad habit of looking at the start list, identifying the people we know, identifying the people we're scared of. Uh, I'm curious, as a professional, do you do something similar? Do you look at who's going to be at a race? And if so, what are the names that you sort of identify as, oh, okay, this is someone I need to watch out for? I think the swim bikers, because I don't like a race being out of my control. Um and blokes who are super swimmers, um, like your Amberger and um, Trent Thorpe, it makes me uncomfortable, I, I suppose. I don't like that I have no control there because I'm as good as I am at swimming. But if it was a run at the start of the race, I'd feel so, I'd feel no nerves because I'm in control there. <laughs> it's very easy. You know what's going on, you can see it all. Um, so, yeah, like I see a swim biker um, as a threat because. In the professional ranks, you know, you never know what goes up, what goes on up the road. Like they could work together, or a motorbike might be too close at times. Like you just go, is this 100% fair? And most of the time, it is, unless you're in Asia and the motorbike just, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. He's like chatting to the guy and secretly it's just a huge draft. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just, I get nervous because, you, you know, they, out of sight out of mind like i try to do um in transition one they could be um out of my sight and if, if i'm in a group i don't want to drag everyone along but i want to go hard and if no one's going to help out then these guys will get away so it's it's mostly that there's you, you're never really suspicious of of any like drafting or anything up ahead um it plays in your mind a tiny bit but mostly you're just annoyed that you're stuck with a group where half the guys don't want to work 
and they're just going to sit there. And 12 metres, let's be real, there's a bit of a draft. So when they're sitting behind you, you're doing all the work at the front, it's really frustrating because, you know, are we really wanting to race for third place here, guys? Come on. Like, these guys are up the road working their ass off because they know we might be fighting around back here. And that's what happens every time. So if you don't break away from those guys, those ones that are willing to just sit there and then outrun you for third place, it's like, yeah, that, that's what scares me. Um, mm. I wanna, yeah, that's why I like Shepparton because we were all exposed in the wind 20-minute drafting rule. I'm looking at uh, the races that you've you've done and I'm seeing that, you know, you haven't gone up against guys like, you know, Sebastian Kinley or Jan Frodeno or Lionel Sanders, you know, the real strong cyclists of the world. Um, I mean, Jan is also one of the phenomenal runners. Uh, it, it's like how does that change the mindset? You know, when you, when you know that somebody's coming from behind like Kinley or, or Sanders who are, have just this monster bike and then can also run off the bike. How does that yeah. change the mindset? Um, yeah, I, well, I don't, I can't even put myself in those, that position yet. Cause I, I haven't, I really, really, really wanted, um, but the opportunities were going to be in 2020. I was going to go over and do all that stuff. Um, and yeah, had like eight thousand dollars worth of flights to America and um, and Europe and all that that I had to try and get back <laughs> when they all got cancelled. <clears throat> so yeah, it's going to happen soon where I get those nerves. But <clears throat> I suppose you train for the people that you're racing against. So I would go in thinking I'm a biker now, whereas in Australia at the moment you have to train for the swim and run, just because. Uh, you know, we're obviously the bike is still most important, but unfortunately, in some of these races recently, <clears throat> um, it's come down to a running race because we can't break away from these blokes on that drafting rule of <clears throat> 12 meters on a congested course. So it's been really frustrating at times when you're like yelling at someone to go past and they won't come past, they won't help out. So, anyway, <clears throat> that's what I've been trying to aim for, and that's why the running here is so quick at the moment, I think and the swimming's getting a lot better but if we were to go over and do the big championship events these blokes who are sitting on they're not going to last and i know being one of the stronger bikers recently even i'm not going to last in those races with Sanders and Kingway. so i've got a lot of work to do if i'm coming over to st george um i know i know i'm capable of it and anyone in australia can, can be too um reedy he knows what I have to do as my coach because he's won the world champs and he does keep up on the bike with these guys. Uh, some of them, not Sanders and Kimo, but <laughs> but yeah, you know what? He knows what to do. So I'm I'm going to go under his guidance and we'll train for the races. Um, and it makes you less nervous knowing that I've prepared for who I'm racing. So yeah, I think I'll have a swim bike focus when I'm against those, you know, the big guys that you just mentioned. My run, I'm not too worried about. I think without doing too much of it, I'll still get a competitive time if my swim and bike is good enough. Well, that's really interesting and really awesome insights. I really appreciate it, uh, Steve. And, and I really appreciate your time today. I, I wish you nothing but success on your surgery and on your training afterwards. And uh, I hope that uh, it'll work out that uh, you'll get over to St. George and 
hopefully we'll get to meet in person. Uh, best of luck on your uh, impending baby. Uh, I am uh, hopeful that that will all work out for you and uh, nothing but continued success in the future. Steve McKenna is a uh, up and coming professional triathlete. You uh, probably haven't heard a lot of him because he's done most of his races and most of his success has come in Asia and Australia, but watch out for him. Yeah, you will be hearing about him uh, in the near future as he makes his way over to our neck of the woods. Steve, thanks again for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Can't wait to get over and race all your guys and meet, meet some, uh, some other triathletes in the U.S. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the program, that interview with Steve McKenna was recorded back in May, and a lot has happened since then. So let me bring you up to date. Uh, Steve's foot surgery was successful, and he has returned to racing. He actually did his uh, first marathon and recorded a 226.55. That was uh, pretty recently. He took second place in an open marathon. He also had his baby. He and his wife welcomed uh, Winnie, their uh, first baby back in early August. Unfortunately, because of COVID restrictions and ongoing issues in Australia, Steve is not going to be able to participate in the World Championships in St. George. We will, however, look forward to him resuming his triathlon career whenever the pandemic eases up in Australia. And uh, hopefully we can look forward to seeing him get onto the world stage soon after that. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Zankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And if you do so now, on August the 30th, there is going to be a live interactive lecture on the science of tapering. So sign up today. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.